I'm super happy. Are you happy? Welcome to the BU Find Happy Podcast. Here you'll find tips and tricks to inspire you on your way to happiness, to live a courageous life of authenticity, and learn how to speak your truth with grace. I'm Michaela Johnson, and welcome to our podcast. this episode goes outside of the traditional talks that we have on BU Find Happy that are incredibly metaphysical, but I just couldn't help but acknowledge some of the things that I've been seeing and hearing from people in the way of end times and how people rely on their faith. I welcome Dr. Joy Pugh to this podcast today, and I think you'll find everything she shares insightful, even if it doesn't completely align with you. Have a listen. Hello there. Hi, Michaela. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Wonderful. So happy to have you on and and to get connected and all of that good stuff. Gosh, so many questions. Can you give the listeners a little bit of backstory about you and, and how you got into this truly incredible field? Well, you know, I started out really as a young child and I had a very strange dream when I was six years old about the end of days and it woke me up. And of course it really kind of changed my life and set me on a path to really try to find out what it was that I thought that this dream really meant. And of course I was born and raised in, in church and uh, had just never seen anything quite as uh, uh, tragic and and terrible uh, ever, even on TV, because back in the day when I was a little girl, there was just not anything like that other than Disney and flipper and, Right. <laughs> and things are really good. So, you know, there was an Armageddon and all that kind of thing that you see now on TV that children are exposed to. So it was really quite unusual to know that this dream meant something. And in it, I actually had what I believe was Jesus that was there uh, and who really I felt got me through that moment of seeing something very tragic. And so it made me want to become more of a Christian. It made me want to search why I had been given this dream. And so it, it was an undercurrent of everything that I did because I was born and raised as a Southern Baptist. And of course, Southern Baptists really did not allow women to step into the pulpit. But at that particular time growing up, I've really felt a call upon my life to really be a pastor. And, and that was just an unheard of situation. So uh, I went on to pursue my education. And I, uh, I studied all the way through my doctorate. Uh, and I have a doctorate in administration and supervision. And while I was doing all that, I had several professors that allowed me to do papers on the end of days and to try to figure out what it was that I really saw in that dream, really actually that dream when I was six years old. And so I began building a library um, of information to really answer my questions. Uh, And then when I would be in business meetings and things and people would bring up stuff that was happening in real time, I would say, well, that has to do with this and that has to do with that. And they would say, well, Joy, I just did not understand that you had that kind of background. I said, oh, listen, this has been something that's been with me since I was six years old and that I've had an interest in for a very, very long time. And they would say, well, you just need to write a book. And I'd say, yes, I, I just need to write a book. And then finally, what happened was that my mother got very sick with cancer and it forced me to have to take, come home and take care of her. And when I did, it gave me the chance to continue pursuing and reading and finalizing, which I think God set me on the path to do when I was six years old. And so in 1999, I wrote my first book called Antichrist, the Cologne Image of Jesus Christ. And then I followed up After that, with Eden, the Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666, which is a volume one and two uh, series. And then after that book, I wrote Beguiled, Eden to Armageddon series, and that has a volume one, two, and three. There's three uh, volumes to that series. And then the most recent thing that I did was Parables of Joy on a Georgia farm. And this talks about me growing up and kind of gives the uh, people who follow my research a way to get to know me so that you don't think I'm just writing books just to be writing something or bringing up a theory that hasn't been really researched. You, you understand what it was like as a child. I talk about the dream in that particular book. And then I also talk about what it was like to grow up 
and, and, and the hardships and the pains and uh, the sufferings that we go through as children and how we, you know, don't really understand the path that we're being set for. But in my life, how that really path was set when I was six years old and just didn't even realize it. So uh, I've got, like I say, seven, seven books. And, uh, and I do have some uh, books that are, are, are poetry books that are no longer available. And then I have one uh, CD, an album of 12 of my original songs where I play all the instruments on the album that is called Before Time Stops. So uh, I, I'm a musician, an author, a researcher. And um, like I say, my background was in the early part of my education was in actually being becoming an attorney and I decided I did not want to do that did not want to pursue that and I decided that I wanted to really get into counseling so I have a lot of uh, psychology uh, and things of that in my background and then of course I studied my doctorate in administration supervision because I had thought one time that maybe I would like to be a uh, president of a college and so I was pursuing the academic side of that in, in hopes to maybe be able to run something of that nature. But most of the, the, the work that I did throughout my life was with a mentally and physically handicapped and served on some bit really big boards. I served with Eunice Kennedy Shriver on her board. It was for the uh, younger age groups. And then I was uh, on the Georgia Special Olympic Board of Directors for two long terms in which, you know, I oversaw a lot of what happened as far as the Special Olympic programs in Georgia. So uh, I've had an opportunity to be on a really big world stage. And uh, I've done a lot of work in the past on a lot of radio shows, including uh, being a uh, guest on the History Channel for the series of the, the, the seven signs of the, really of the apocalypse, which had something to do with Nostradamus. And I did a series with History Channel for that. So I've had an opportunity to do a lot of things to talk about the work that I feel like God laid upon my heart as a six-year-old. And, um, and so my books kind of are very, very full of information. They're very researched. Um, they have bibliographies, and I'm, you know, I give you information in the text where you can find the information that I talk about. So hopefully that it teaches you something and gives you a spark to desire to really want to go out and find these things out for yourself. I mean, I, I guess that's the teacher in me that I want you to learn something. So the books do not read like a, a uh, like a college textbook, I've written them more like a, a novel so that it's something you can't put down. And uh, I'm very interested to uh, be able to talk with you and, and, and you have your listeners understand about my research. So I thank you for letting me be on your show today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and, it, and for, from my perspective and, and, and the podcast, it is, um, there are a lot of components to the podcast where we've had a lot of episodes that have been very metaphysical based. Um, but I was born in, a into a Baptist family myself. Um, and you know, have, I, I actually went to a Lutheran university. A lot of people don't know that about me, but, um, when I first went away to college, I went to a Lutheran university and I've had a lot of questions, um, over the course of years from my family and some of the ways that I look at religion and different things like that. And, um, when, when I first connected with you, it just seemed like such a great fit to have you on to kind of talk, um, some of these, some of these concepts about religion, but also, you know, I have a lot of clients that have struggled with death or loss in their life and they, um, you know, are just exploring what comes next in that way. And, um, you know, I think we all, we all have a moment, at least one in our lifetime where we wonder about that. So, uh, lots of questions for you about these sorts of concepts. How do you think access to information has changed the way that people look at religion? I mean, I'm even thinking back, you know, back in the days of Jesus Christ, when he walked, um, back in the days of Buddha, back in these these times, they didn't have the type of communication across, you know, the oceans that we have today. How has that impacted the way that people are looking at religion and exploring religion? Well, you know, like you say, back in the day when Jesus was here, you know, he was able only to walk and they did everything walking or riding donkeys. And, and of course, the Romans had their, their, their carriages and things that they used, but the ability to move information from place to place was very limited. 
And I think that that is uh, one of the reasons that after the gospel came uh, to the uh, the disciples of Jesus, and they were able to go out and to travel into these other lands. Uh, that's how the spread of the gospel took place. And then, of course, when Constantine brought into the desire to unite his uh, Roman Empire, his intention was to bring really the Christians and the pagans together under one umbrella. And so that's really how a lot of religion, as far as the Gospels, was able to be carried very far and very distant and be become very widespread because of that unification that he allowed to happen. And, of course, we know from what he did, he developed the, the Catholic Church and then the Catholicism kind of developed as a side arm to some of, uh, some of that. Um, the fact that that allowed... Uh, the the bringing together of more information and maybe accumulating it into an area where there was a lot of travel and a lot of, uh, of intelligence that was going on during those days. So it made it widespread. And then, of course, when Martin Luther pulled out from the Catholic Church and and really wanted to go back to the original Gospels, that typically is what we find uh, that we study from because of the King James Version and, and the Bible that came from that was the original Gospels. And so that ability to be able to have in hand printed copies of the Word of God, which was not something that was available back in the day. It was more oracle, more taught, and, and more taught. And even in the Catholic Church, it was something that was in Latin, and only the, the major priest or the Pope had the capability to to deliver those messages. So when Martin Luther pulled out from the Catholic Church and brought that the Gospels out to the world, and then, of course, we know the Protestants and, and all the stuff that really came about by that, and then, of course, the formation of things like, you know, the Baptist Church, Methodist Church, those kind of Presbyterians, uh, Episcopalian, all those things started uh, deriving themselves from that. And then it became a, a global thing that now, with technology and with the ability to do publications of Bibles and, and people to be able to buy them. And then with the internet and with the capability that we now have, even just with a cellular phone, that we can bring a Bible anywhere we are in the world. So the widespreadness of preaching the gospel, which according to scripture was going to happen at the end of days, that it would become such a widespread thing that the whole world would be given the opportunity to understand the word of God. And so now we see in these countries that um, were typically more pagan religions, they are finding Jesus. And there is a great movement in these foreign countries uh, to really turn to Jesus. And some of them are suffering very terrible deaths at the hands of people who don't want them to change over to really understand the gospel of Christ so it's, it's come full circle, uh, and it's really expanded itself much, we, you know, much to the surprise of, I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't have an internet, or we didn't have the World Wide Web, so everything was a little local library. And like I say, when I first started doing my research, it was to find books and then to go to a library and wait two or three maybe weeks or even a month before I could get a library from the, I mean, get a book from the Library of Congress out of Washington, D.C., so our ability to have access to real-time information on a global scale has come about because of, of sheer technology. So we have moved into a, uh, a greater field of having everyone on this planet be aware of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's quite amazing at the numbers of people that are being saved in these other countries based on that. A couple of years back, this was quite a few years back, um, Mom and I went and saw the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. But one of the things that was interesting to me was, you know, a lot of what, a lot of what Buddha says in, in his ideas and concepts of enlightenment are similar to what Jesus Christ was preaching. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that you have to go all the way back and look at um, King David. And, you know, that's about 2,000 years really before uh, Jesus came on the scene. And we know that he was from the lineage of David, but his son Solomon, if you go back and you read 
uh, Psalms and Proverbs. And we know that King Solomon was supposed to have been the wisest man on the, on this planet and the richest at the time. And, of course, was giving uh, the opportunity to build the first real temple for uh, the housing of the Ark of the Covenant. The interesting thing, when you study Solomon, you find that he had these uh, numbers of wives that were from uh, outside of the, let's say, the religion that he was presently professing. And even the Queen of Sheba, when she came and visited, there's always been the fact that a lot of that information that went back to Ethiopia and other places uh, into the Orient, into the Eastern religions and stuff like that, that some of that information may have been used to establish understanding, but yet not really uh, give the credit to where it should have been given. And I think that's the interesting thing. Like you say, that there are similarities, but yet it was by people who were professing it and then trying to use it to boost uh, their particular situation. And when you look at Jesus and what he came to teach and the fact that he alone is the only one of those we've, we've, if you look at Mohammed, if you look at Buddha, if you look at Krishna, if you look at those other people that sometimes we are told could be of a similar uh, setup, none of those particular people other than Jesus was born really as a son of God. And none of those people who actually died ever rose again. So they are in the grave. And that's the thing that I think makes Christianity just a little bit more important in that they may have been prophets, but they were not the sons of God. And they definitely were not resurrected or, you know, are alive again. And that's the interesting part of the research that I do is that I've studied the Shroud of Turin and I, of course, have uh, studied the blood on the shroud. I studied the things that the, um, you know, that the disciples went through and how they actually were a bunch of wimps before and during the crucifixion. But then after the resurrection, those men who literally hid themselves, when they saw that man resurrected, they turned around and every one of them went through martyrs, being martyrs, and dying tragic deaths. Even John the Revelator, who who really lived um, until he became an old man and passed, as, as Scripture said he would do, what, what Christ prophesied, he actually was boiled in oil and lived to tell about it, and then, of course, was put on the Isle of Patmos and, and isolated for all those years. And And when you think about it, if you and I had a friend and he went to the cross, and he didn't resurrect, and they were after us, you know, you were one of his friends, and we would have been like Peter, oh, oh, oh no, because we would not want to, you know, die for, for believing in something that was not real. But when they saw him alive again, and touched him, and ate with him, and saw him raise up into the clouds, and him saying, I'm going to be back, you know, I'm going to play, be a prepared place for you, and I'm coming back for you. Uh, you know, preach my gospel. They then went out and were willing to die. I'm, I'm talking about tragic deaths. If that was not real, they would never have done that. They would never put themselves through that kind of sacrifice. And so that's so, where that's important to me to understand about what they did. Some people argue, you know, that, and, and, you know, what we're talking about at the end of the day, that's faith here, but some people argue that, um, that the body was just relocated. Some people argue that they were hallucinating. What are your thoughts on that from just our modern understanding of life and death and, and the physical process that happens to the body? What is your explanation for that? Well, I think that the Shroud of Turin is really the answer to that. Uh, the research that was done on it back in the early 60s and 70s by the uh, a research team called the Sturp Committee, they literally pull uh, you know, the blood off, the claw, off that cloth, and they cloned it, and they determined that it was really a Jewish man and determined that this, based on the evidence there, that the man had suffered great crucifixion. 
And when they allowed the cloth to even be looked at from the forensic standpoint of somebody that would look at it as if it was a crime scene, they determined that that man really had been crucified identical to what had happened and what is told to us in Scripture. Now, to be able to pull that off as a medieval fake or to fake something, you would have had to have done that to a real crucified person. And the fact that the blood itself is really, according to the research that I'm presently doing and continue to do that I talk about in my work, that blood is absolutely still alive. And when it was processed like that, there was a strangeness in the fact that the chromosomes were there for the mother, the 23 that we know exist in the human body for the mother, but there was only one for the father, which makes it quite interesting to know that that blood is not normal blood as we have in our system and run through us because we know that Jesus was the son of God. And then looking at the fact that the amount, the actually the Stratoturin is the most research relic in all of human history. There's been more research done on that piece of cloth than anything that's ever been brought to the table for research. And the thing that's interesting is where they tried to discredit back in the 1988 time period where they wanted to try to make it that it was uh, a cloth that maybe Michael, Michelangelo may have painted or either that it had been uh, forged and was not a true cloth. When they went to check the, the linen itself, they cut pieces from that cloth that had been rewoven. That cloth went through a fire uh, and, was, and it had to be restitched on the edges of it by these nuns. And what happens is when they took the pieces off, they allowed three different universities to look at that particular piece of cloth. And they all came up with kind of skewed um, dates and times. And so they had some people who also had pieces of the cloth who did it through a materialistic review, people who were familiar with uh, material. And what they found in the cloths that they had taken and done this uh, really uh, uh, carbon dating was that the linen was stitched in with, with cotton. Well, the original cloth, the center of that cloth with where the 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 process of Jesus's body is laid out in front and back is all linen. And that's one thing that you find in anything in regard to the Jewish uh, uh, religion. They didn't mix things. If they had something wool, it was all wool. If they had something linen, it was all linen. They did not mix anything. That was very taboo as far as the Hebrews and the Israelites were taught. So the linen cloth that Jesus was wrapped in was all linen. So that is why that 1988 carbon dating became such a, a, a it was it was skewed because it had the, the 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 cotton in it. The cloth itself was not originally cut where the body in the process actually laid. So now they went back and they used an analyzer and all kinds of things that we typically would use on Mars to look at topography. And what happens is when you use that analyzer on, on the strata terrains, it's 3D. And there is no picture that's a, you know, that can be like a 3D image or can be made to manifest on linen like that. And so they have given really researchers around the world, you know, give us a cloth. You make a cloth like this and you can prove that this is not really real. No one with all the technology that we have has even come close. And so even the pollen, even the um, the pieces of what they think are, are the cross, pieces of the little splinters that were on that, and as well as where the feet imprint on that cloth is, is actually from that the tomb area. So even the little area of the head where the blood was, where Christ had the crown of thorns placed on his head, they've been able to pull pollen off that cloth that is for a particular thorn plant that only grows in Jerusalem, nowhere else in the world. So there's so, a lot of scientific evidence that that cloth now is real. And, and even Pope Francis made the comment that that cloth was real when he took over his pope. Well, you know, back then things were so barbaric as is. I mean, these days you just off them with a high-powered rifle from 500 yards away. You That's know? right. <laughs> That's right. So dramatic. Um, 
So, so how do you feel? You mentioned earlier, scripture mentions um, various different things uh, about end times. How do you feel when people say that we're currently in end times? Well, I truly believe that. I mean, there's, there's no way that we cannot look at the possibility because of what the book of Revelation tells us. And if you look at that, it says the final generation that will be upon this earth will see these certain things come to pass and that they will come to pass within that generation. Well, when Israel became a, a nation, that was one of the prime things that had to start happening. And then the fact that we have now a president who allowed uh, the, you know, Jerusalem to become the, where our embassy is located. Our, our, Constitution or our, our people that represent our Constitution, like our senators and representatives in Washington, had already really said that really the embassy needed to be there, but no one had taken the initiative to, to make that happen. I think they were a little bit afraid of that. And when Trump stepped in, he promised, I'm going to move that embassy to Jerusalem. That was another step. And then the fact that he just announced last night on national TV that he has the peace plan ready. So these are things that we know the final generation would see. But more importantly, what we're seeing are these particular things. We're seeing gross sexual perversion, much like Sodom and Gomorrah, that was talked about as part of end days. The marriage breakdown, lovers of self, fleshly desires, nations becoming hostile and fighting among themselves, tensions arising. And then the promise of this peace plan coming to be told about. And of course, in Matthew 24, Jesus said that the gospel would be preached to the entire world. What we just talked about is that it's now being preached to the entire world through the radio, TV, internet, just like what we're doing today. Let me ask you some questions about this. The mark of the beast, the 666. Yes. Where are we seeing that? And and the other question Mom brings this up often that the uh, the churches of the world will be called to their their flaws will be announced when they say that they don't mean or the religions of the world. They don't mean Presbyterian, Catholic, Baptist. They don't mean all within Christianity. They mean Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. Right. That That's what they mean in in and the uh, in the scripture. And when you're talking about 666, 666 is specifically a man. It says it's the number of a man and that it is a beast and that that beast is going to walk among us. And John the Revelator calls it an image of the beast. And it and that it's a very strange word. It's actually a Greek word used for iconic image of a beast means that he will be a man in an iconic image of someone that has been before. And we know that Christ said, you know, in, in the scriptures, when he was here, you're going to have people say, there he is, there he is. So it's going to be a man walking, professing to be Christ and will be in a Messiah type of statue and have the ability to really prove to the world in some form or fashion that he is indeed the Christ that's returned. So a lot of the things will happen is that the Catholic church will be involved in that. And we see the Catholic church bringing a lot of the, the other religions under one umbrella and saying to these other religions, it's not so much that you have to change to what we say. It's the fact that we rep- that all religions worship the same God by a different name. But what's going to happen is that the exposing of religion is that once you have to agree that Jesus Christ is proven to have lived, died, and resurrected, then your other religions have to take another step. And of course, there are, you know, there's proof that they already acknowledged stuff. And even the the Quran has, you know, in passages in its in its in its work, that holy book of the Muslims that references Jesus and his miraculous virgin birth to Mary. So it's not like they're not familiar or don't know it. Many of them have called him a prophet. 
a wise man. But what we have to start looking at is if we can see that he resurrected and that he's alive, then if he's going to walk back into this world, then all the religions would have to come to terms that that he was the son of God. And that is a real uh, eye opener because even in in Revelation, where it talks about the the seven churches that it that John the Revelator was talking about, he was saying that these churches would go through different levels of coming to understand about Jesus, and that at the final days, the the Church of Philadelphia was a church much like you and I grew up in, as far as Southern Baptist or Baptist in which preaching was very straightforward and you do this, do this, do this, do this. Then it says we're going to move in a generation that will see all these things come to pass into a church called the Laodicean church. And the Laodicean church back in the day was a very mixed church. It was a a politically uh, organized church. It was a church that was lukewarm. It was a church that was more social than real belief. And so if we look at um, churches today, unfortunately, within Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, that kind of thing, we're seeing that church has become a social thing, a social gathering. Um, Many people have to entice people to come and listen, have food, have shows, add popular music, you know, have dancers. We're seeing that change from the focus of one man standing and preaching the word of God and the focus on the word into being entertained. And a lot of the churches have removed the choir loss. They have removed um, even the area to come at the altar and pray and have made it more like a stage where it's more like a presentation. And that is where you start talking about actually lukewarming down traditional preaching and even the Bibles that we have now. Most people don't realize when somebody initiates another Bible outside of the King James Version, they have to change something in that Bible to get copyright capability. If they don't, then they are under copyright law and they can be sued for using the same thing that the King James Version says. So there's a version leave out a lot of stuff, though, that didn't fit the the popular culture at the time. Weren't there many books that didn't make the cut? Well, the Septuagint and some of the things that were uh, before actually the King James that was taken out, some of the books like uh, Jubilees, Maccabees, you know, there's there's these extra uh, um, books that were kind of a part of that in its very beginning, even the book of Enoch at one time way back. I have a friend that has a Bible that still has all that old original stuff in it. it's worth a fortune. And it's, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's bigger than the encyclopedia uh, uh, dictionaries. It is literally huge and, uh, and have had that in my hands and been able to look at it and be able to see that. The the translations, when they went from using Greek and Hebrew into being able to write it into, uh, you know, English, there are not words sometimes in English that will translate from Greek and Hebrew. So that's one reason when I did my research, I went back and pulled the original words from the Greek and Hebrew and show you how those translations made their way into what we read in English so that it helps you understand scripture a little bit more intensely and that you get the true meaning of what that particular scripture was saying. I don't think it was an intentional thing done. It was just that our language didn't have certain words. So the antichrist is going to walk the earth and then, and then the resurrection is going to happen. Correct. I mean, as far as, um, you know, everybody, and I read years ago, there was a series about like the final days, like Armageddon kind of a thing and, and how people just started disappearing. They just started disappearing. Um, do you believe that that's, what's going to happen? And then do you believe that earth becomes hell or is hell something else? Um, well, the, the timeline of what's going to happen, we're told that there is this tribulation period that's going to happen. And the book of Revelation tells us that up until a particular time, uh, 
that really your Christians are going through this time period of like we're seeing right now, changes in the sun, moon, and stars, you know, the plagues, the fact that we've got the coronavirus that's getting out of hand, the fact that we've got uh, us unrest and all these things that we were talking about that we see becoming a part of end of days uh, with the pestilence and the, and the plagues and the, and the un, un, the world tension and everything that's kind of happening with us. When you see those things start happening, it says you to really to pay attention. And there's a parable in scripture that talks about the 10 virgins and, t- and five of them kept the oil in their lamps and five let it go without any oil. And then what happens according to the Jewish tradition is that there was a, a time called the thief in the night in which uh, the people were on the wall watching for the new moon. And they never knew when that uh, first little sliver was going to start coming back up. And so they would sit there with their trumpets waiting. And when they saw it, they would blow the trumpets. And then everybody had to run to the temple, whether it was in the middle of, you know, of the night or two o'clock in the morning, um, you had to be able to go. Well, what this parable is talking about is those people that had their oil, the women that had their oil in those lamps, those five made it to that uh, temple and got in. And then the other five didn't have the oil, so they couldn't see how to run anywhere in the dark back in those days. I mean, they were just lost. And so they didn't make it into the temple. You had a certain amount of time from the point that 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 trumpet blew to get into that temple and the doors were closed and you couldn't get in it. So that is talking about a catching away. And many times we've heard this talked about in, 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 um, and hearing people preach about something called the rapture. Now the word rapture does not appear in scripture, but the word catching away does. And this is where rapture comes from. The catching away is like a thief in the night. In other words, one person will be standing there and another person will be next to them. And then one will be gone. And just in the twinkling, the drop of an eye, it tells us that that is much like the moment the, the, the trumpet blows that those that are with Christ that are in heaven now, that are the saints, will come back and immediately in, in just a second of a twinkling of an eye, they're going to bust the grave open. And much like he did, the body or whatever ashes or wherever they are will be brought back into a true bodily form. And that spirit will reconnect to its body. When that happens in that split second, everyone that's a Christian on earth that's alive will be called up in the twinkling of an eye, and I'm talking about if you think about a twinkle in your eyes, it's faster than a blink. And you will, your body will be changed in that split second into an immortal body, just like the ones that have come back and received that body back the same way right before us. Now, that's the catching away. That is only something for Christians. And everybody else will be left with what happened to miss so-and-so and what happened to my father and where's my mother and where's my two children. I mean, people will be searching, trying to figure out what happened to those people. Well, the great delusion will happen then because there is silence in heaven at this particular time that this occurs. And then what's going to happen is that really all hell will break loose as a wrath of tribulation for probably a little over a year and a half, which will lead up to the battle of Armageddon. While this is ensuing on earth, the people that have been caught up to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you call that the bride of Christ is removed during the catching away. You will be with Jesus at the at the bride, at the groom, at the marriage supper of the Lamb during that period of time. And then the 144,000 that are left that are of the true tribes that were of the 12 tribes, there'll be 12,000 from each 12 tribe that is left here. They will actually be able to, to understand what's happening because Christ is going to seal them in their forehead and the other people will not be sealed. And of course I talk about the pineal gland and how that has a play in all this and, and the delusion will be so great. They will not really understand what's happening. But during that time, the antichrist will be in power. He will lead the worlds into a great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. That is in the Valley of Medigedo, which is right out there near Jerusalem in Israel. And it's a perfectly formed natural battleground. In fact, every general that was of any magnitude, Mussolini, all the way down to Patton and, and, and some of the other people have said that's the most perfect 
laid out, naturally made battleground that's ever been fixed. And it's been here since the beginning of the earth. So, you know, that battle is going to happen. And when that battle starts to ensue and then the world is coming to this, you know, the stage of terrible destruction, then Jesus Christ in the second coming is called the second coming. He comes back riding a horse. And when he splits the sky, every person on this planet will fall to their knees because you cannot stand in the presence of pureness. No matter how strong you think you are, when you are in the presence of pureness, you will bow down and and he will come at that particular time, destroy the situation that's going on and establish a, a thousand year reign during that time. All the, um, you know, the, the false prophet and 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 Satan, they'll be bound into the lake of fire. And then what happens is during that thousand year reign on earth, there will be other people born that are human like you and I are right now. But the saints that are changed and us that are, t- are caught up as the bride of Christ, we are in a body that will not deteriorate. It will not die. It will not have blemishes. We are totally saved. The other people are living through that thousand year period. At the end of that thousand year period, Satan is re unleashed again. And instantly, if you follow him or choose, if you're one of those people that are left and you choose to follow him, it's instant death. Then that brings about the great white throne of judgment. Now, the people that go to the great white throne of judgment are those people that are been in hell this whole time. That's never, you know, that's died and gone to hell along with the ones that have gone to hell during that particular period of time. And then it, all the, the judgment will occur before God. And you have to stand before him because you don't have Jesus that's covered your sins. That's the thing about us as Christians. When we go into the marriage supper of the lamb and, and at, uh, at a, a period of time, we are told the things that we may have not done right that would have brought blessings and whatever. But we are given our crowns for what we are doing. And we will lay our crowns at his feet because at that point in time, we understand the humbleness of what we have been, you know, given a chance into paradise because of this blood that we believed in and trusted in. But for those people who stand before the great white throne of judgment, they have no Jesus Christ to stand before them. So they've got to stand there and justify to the creator, you know, their good works or what they thought was right or why they did what they did. And you and I know that we are born into a fallen world. You're a sinful nature. There is nothing that can save you. You can't say, well, my best friend taught me into drinking or my best friend told me I could do this. Or you have no defense except you before the creator. And that's when he sins. He separates really the, the goat from the sheep. And he sends those people who have tried to stand on their own, believing that they're doing just good works without having to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and be covered by his blood. No different than when the Passover happened and they put the Passover blood on the doorpost and all the Egyptians, young children, first, you know, the firstborn died. And then the Israelites were able to not have that death angel touched them. The blood covered them. The blood of Jesus covers us as believers in Christ Jesus. If you don't have that, when you go before that throne of judgment, you're going to have to stand on your own accord. You cannot stand in the presence of God in pureness of your own accord. There's nothing on this planet that can do that. So after that period of time, when the, when the earth and, and everything is separated out, then everything is made new. And it says that everything is going to roll up like a scroll and everything will kind of be changed in some form or fashion. Now, that does not mean that those people in hell are burned up and it's over because suffering is something that can continue because of the law of thermodynamics. In other words, once energy is created, It is never destroyed. The moment that the sperm touches an egg, there is an electrical thing that occurs that we now through technology can see and energy is formed. So in the womb, the moment the sperm touches the egg, you are born. So the question of abortion and when it's right there, the moment the sperm touches the egg, that energy is made. Now, if that doesn't live to the point of being birthed, 
it's still an entity that has been created that one day will live in the presence of you if you were the mother or the father. You will know that was a part of you. You will you will meet it one day. So so is so is hell proverbial then? Hell is going to be just the same thing as as heaven forever. There will be a hell forever, except there won't be like an earth like we see an earth. The elements of earth are burned up. But when you understand that the encompassing area, even in the Old Testament of what was established as hell and then the bosom of Abraham, where there was a great gulf that separated them, it'll be the same setup. But you will always be because you are created as an energy that will always exist. So let's just say if you are created like that and we will always stay in our perfect bodies as we were created I mean, you can walk through a wall, you can do whatever. I mean, you're in a, in, you're in a body that can do anything. Uh, the same thing with hell. The body can be burnt, brought back, burnt, tortured, brought back. I mean, consistently. You can be going through that forever. I have a tough time with the idea of purgatory for a God who is so pure and compassionate. That's That's a big struggle for me. When people talk about hell, I have a tough time because I see humans going through a living hell here. And I, you know, as a psychotherapist, have seen the angst of the mind and the power of the mind that has caused people to quote sin or do things like this. I have such a hard time with this idea of purgatory because I believe that, um, I believe that in energy, 100%, I, I think that's been proven at this point. Yes. And that it's hard for me to acknowledge that there could be such grand punishment when um, coming from a God who's so compassionate and and knowing that energy is everlasting. And, that, and that's the thing, is that uh, if he had created us as robots to have done exactly what he said, but he created us with free will. And that's where Lucifer decided to do what he did. And of course we know he was immortal when he decided to, to rebel and and to do his own thing. The fact is that we were created in a mortal state and that we were given the opportunity to, to make a choice. And unlike some of the choices we make, you know, because we are in a fallen world, we are told we are in a fallen world. We are in a sinful body that we, or, you know, we, we came out of original sin that happened there in the garden. But the provision was made through Jesus's blood that covers us, which I fully believe is a, is a lie from the, the, the studies of the strata trend. It literally has the way of covering us. And because we are covered, if we, let's say, once we become a Christian and we establish that in our lives, the, the enemy cannot take us away. We are going to sin because we have the sinful nature, but we can go to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and be covered by that grace and mercy. Now, if we choose to say, there is no God, I'm going to do my thing, I'm going to live like whatever, then you have made the same decision that he allowed everybody else to make, as well as the angels. And if you choose to live like that, then you, because of that, cannot be purified. The blood of Jesus will not cover you. In pureness, in pure light, in pureness, evil and darkness cannot exist. So when he separates us out and he destroys all this other, he's going to put the darkness back in a place where light is never going to be seen of it or vice versa. Because you cannot stand in a sinful body. That's why that body is going to be changed when that's when that second coming and when that, I mean, when that rapture or that catching away occurs, because you can't go into the presence of heaven in something that has no pureness in it. It has to be purified. And so, unfortunately, as bad as as I hate to say, God is a loving God. He gave us a provision. He cares. He loves us, but he gave us free will. If you want to love him, fine. If you don't, then eternity with the people who don't love him. And, and unfortunately, I think that it breaks his heart. I mean, he had to send his son to die tragically and be beaten so severely 
for taking on the sins of the world and really allowing his spirit to, in, in, you know, endure the sins of everybody. I mean, he took on every sin that I have ever done. And I know the other night I did a, a song at church called The Day He Wore My Crown. The words to that song that you're the one to blame, you are. Every one of us are the ones to blame for what he suffered and died for. But had he not done that, our chances of going to heaven, if when Adam and Eve committed their sins, if he had not allowed that provision, we would all have gone to hell. We'd lived our lives just like, you know, run and do whatever you want to. And you'd have died and you'd have gone to hell. And that would have been your forever place of torment. But at least we have a provision. We can change it. Dr. Joy, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate hearing you talk about this. I know we've just barely scraped the surface, but where can people find your books if they want to learn more about this? How can people get in touch? You can go to my website, which is www.drjoy, and it's D-R-J-O-Y-E. It's joy with an E dot com. And then my Facebook page is joy, J-O-Y-E. And then the last name is Pew, and it's spelled P as in Paul, U-G-H. And you can friend me there or message me there. And I talk about my radio shows and things and when they're coming up and who, you know how you can listen in. But on my um, webpage, there is a, a link to all of my books uh, that you, if you're interested in any of them, as well as a submission form for questions for me. And I do a, a, a monthly Ask Me Anything show on YouTube every Monday night, the last Monday night of every month for two hours from 8 to 10. And uh, I answer people's direct questions about the research or about questions that they might have, just like you've asked me today. And, uh, and hopefully that you'll listen into that show. And if you'd like to have a question answered on that show, you just submit that submission form to me. And I'll make sure that that question gets into the queue for, that, for those shows that will be upcoming each month. And, um, and like I say, if you have any question about my research or anything like that, I mean, I get emails from all over the world. So don't don't hesitate if you've got a question to be able to uh, contact me. I, be, I would be glad to hear from anyone that, you know, would like to know more about my research. And your knowledge is truly so inspiring. I mean, you are a wealth of resource. And um, I'm thankful that that you took the time to share with my listeners, because I know this is definitely a big topic. And I really appreciate you being here. Listen, I, I thank you so much for allowing me to part, be a part of this. And I, I do think that the, the world that we're living in right now, just, you know, with the coronavirus and the upcoming peace plans and things like that, that we're living in a time that we need to be very aware of the choices we're making and why we're making them. And, and we're all intelligent enough to sit down and try to figure that out for ourselves because nobody realizes, I don't think, how precious our soul is. But it is the most precious asset that you have the only thing that you have that can live forever. I mean, we, we worry about children and finances and cars and whatever, but the most important asset that you have is your living soul that the creator put within you. And I will say this, it looks just like you from the work that I've done. When you step outside of your body, you still look like you and you still have your mind. Um, so you are still you, even though the carcass that you live in may die and you watch it die and you leave it. It's you are still alive and you still look like you. Thank you, Dr. Joy. Thank you so much for being on today. Listen, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. This has been a BU Find Happy podcast. For more inspiration, check out the links.